Welcome to The Pharmacy Benefit, a podcast that highlights the role of PBMs in serving millions of patients and consumers throughout the country. I'm J.C. Scott. On this episode, we're going to talk about the outlook for public policy on drug pricing, the politics involved, and a set of ideas being looked at by Congress, the Biden administration, and many other stakeholders to inject greater competition into the drug manufacturer marketplace. Joining me in this conversation is Lauren Aronson. Lauren is a health policy expert and serves as executive director of the Campaign for Sustainable Prescription Drug Pricing. This organization is a broad-based coalition of stakeholders, physicians, nurses, hospitals, consumers, health plans, PBMs, pharmacists, and businesses, promoting bipartisan market-based solutions to lower drug prices in America. In addition, Lauren is also a partner at the consulting firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Prior to her tenure at the firm, Lauren served in several high-level government positions, including at CMS and in the Obama White House. Lauren was a key member of the Obama administration's team that worked to enact the Affordable Care Act. Lauren also served as health policy advisor to then U.S. Representative Rahm Emanuel. Lauren, thanks for being here and welcome to the Pharmacy Benefit. Great. Thank you, JC. It's great to be with you today. So let's start out with a little bit of a level set and tell everyone about the work that you're doing at the Campaign for Sustainable Prescription Drug Pricing. And full disclosure for our listeners, PCMA is a member of the coalition. But tell everybody, what is the objective of the organization? It's great to be with you again, JC. Our campaign started in 2014, largely as a response to Savoldi. So particularly as I'm sure we'll get into, but you think about the new Alzheimer's drug that just came to market and what that means for for consumers and for payers. This is one of those defining moments. And so it brings me back actually to how CXRXP first began in 2014. And it really was a response to Savoldi. You had Savoldi hit the market and many consumers and physicians and hospitals and payers were greatly concerned about the price tag associated with that drug. And so what we're working to do, what we've grown and done over the last several years, is really just to level set the conversation, talk about what manufacturers are doing, where we need to bring down prices, and how we hold manufacturers accountable for their egregious practices. So as you noted, our campaign is very broad and diverse, but what really unites our members is this focus on prescription drugs, bringing down prices, and holding manufacturers accountable. That's great, Lauren. Obviously, a very important and timely mission that the organization is pursuing. And you alluded to the issue area, the problem that you're seeking to address. And maybe it would be helpful to talk a little bit about the problem definition that we're seeing when it comes to drug pricing. And there was a hearing just a few weeks ago at the House Committee on Oversight and Reform on drug manufacturing pricing strategies. So maybe talk a little bit about the takeaways from that hearing. Does that sort of dovetail with your view on what you see as the problem that the campaign is trying to solve? It's a Great question, JC. So the way I think about the drug pricing challenges here are sort of threefold, because obviously the problem is so diverse. And I think especially when you're talking to policymakers, it's hard for members and thought leaders to get a sense of what the problem really is, because there's so many problems here to try to address. So I I think about in three basic buckets. One, are new drugs coming to market that just have significant price tags associated with them. Sofaldi was one we saw in 2014. Algehelm was one we just saw recently that hit the market for Alzheimer's. But just generally, you know, when you think about the outcry with drugs that are coming to market, and, you know, back in 1989, we had a situation where a drug came to market with a price tag of $8,000 a year, and that had enormous public outcry. 
And so you think about where we are now, where you have Aldehelm, which is $56,000, little to no clinical benefit. And you also have drugs that are coming to market that are millions of dollars a year. And so that is just simply unsustainable. So when I think about the challenges we're facing, one is new drugs coming to market, which of course we all want new innovative drugs, but new innovative drugs are not gonna help consumers if they're not affordable. So that's one major challenge. I'd say a second challenge are drugs that have gone up, uh, their prices have gone up for no rhyme or reason. So you think about, you know, epinephrine, you think about well, the EpiPen, you think about insulin. We have drugs that have been in the market that haven't had any clear new benefits, um, but are obviously beneficial broadly, but we are seeing significant price increases associated um, and that's compounding. And so if you think about if you're a consumer or a payer, um, a plan, a hospital, you can't budget for these significant increases multiple times a year. The third bucket, I, I think, is sort of what I consider to be the, quote, less sexy of, of drug pricing conversations. But these are drugs that are on the market, but are routinely seeing multiple increases a year. So anywhere from two to nine percent. But when it's happening several times a year over the course of many years, and again, no additional clinical benefit here, that just has a compounding effect on on the system. And so the problems we're facing are multifaceted. And as we're thinking about ways to address these issues, we need to think about them differently depending on what kind of problem we're trying to solve. But back to where you started, I think it's phenomenal that the Oversight Committee did a hearing on these issues and particularly had the CEO of AbbVie testify. When I think about the challenges we're facing from a drug pricing perspective, Humira is the poster child for all of these problems. Humira is an example where the drug came to market in 2002 exclusivity has expired. We should have a biosimilar on the market. We do not because of patent uh, shenanigans or patent thickets, which I'm sure we'll get into in a second. We also have significant prices increases happening year after year after year. And so it really encompasses all of the challenges we are facing. So I thought that the oversight committee's work that they did really to try to dig in on AbbVie's egregious practices here was really impactful and helpful. At the hearing itself, we also had a number of academics and thought leaders who do a lot in the patent space really talk about the challenges. Um, and so I think it was really helpful for thought leaders to kind of unpack these problems and really have an airing uh, of the challenges we're facing. That's a great overview, Lauren. And you're right. What I heard at that hearing was some focus on the system that we have that protects intellectual property, right? And what you're describing, see, to me, on a very basic level, I kind of assume market forces eventually are going to come into play and that's going to work. We're going to pay for the value of the drug. There's going to be competition that forces prices downward. That's our system. That should be sufficient to help us make sure that we're balancing rewarding innovation and providing affordable access. But I think what we heard at the hearing is that that's not fully working. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about that system of protection for intellectual property patents, the exclusivity system, and why it may not be functioning as well as it could be when it comes to prescription drugs? I think you, you hit the nail on the head, JC. I mean, the market only works when we have competition. And so that's why we've seen, you know, in the generic space, a ton of competition here. And so that's why generic prices are kept low, because you have significant competition. But as it comes to these more expensive drugs on the brand biologic side, you know, we one, we just had a pathway uh, for biosimilars put into effect in 2010, but we're not getting biosimilars to market for a few reasons. And this goes into, you know, plays into all the issues you just highlighted. One, we need to get biosimilars to market, and that is very challenging to get through the FDA approval process first, but getting biosimilars to market and having that competition with brand biologic drugs, which are so expensive, is, is a big challenge right now, you know, particularly because of the intellectual property shenanigans that a lot of manufacturers are implementing. And they, they 
they openly talk about this as a way to protect their market share. Um, and so one of the biggest challenges we're seeing is that you're you're seeing not only patents being filed on the drug itself, but you're seeing hundreds of patents being filed on every little aspect of a drug itself. So going back to Humira for a second, there are over 300 different patents that have been filed on Humira. I mean, it is one drug. It is one drug. It has not changed. It is the same it has been for many, many years. So the question is, why are there over 300 patents filed on that drug? And so for any manufacturer that wants to come in and try to create a biosimilar for it, you have to then litigate every single patent that takes years and millions of dollars. And so that is one of the biggest reasons why we don't have more competition in the space is because of patent litigation and all of the patent thickets that manufacturers are um, utilizing to protect their market share. You use the word shenanigans as you talked about the intent behind the use of these patents and exclusivity periods as being protecting market share. Shenanigans is a technical legal term, I know. There is a purpose behind the patent system, right? I mean, it's not just to protect market share, it's to reward innovation. And I think about, you mentioned the Alzheimer's drug, and for many families, right, that have suffered from Alzheimer's, they're looking for options. My dad passed away a couple of years ago from Alzheimer's. His brother was in his early 50s when he passed away from the disease. Like there's history in the family. And the idea that we would have a drug out there that starts to get at the theory of addressing the amyloid plaque in the brain, that's pretty exciting for the future of science. So we want to reward innovation, but it seems like the system is designed to reward innovation. It's gotten a little off course. Is that is that sort of what you're saying? I absolutely agree. We definitely want new innovative therapies to come to market and we want to make sure that they're accessible, but we also need to make sure they're affordable too. Um, and so that is one of the things that that is truly a balance. You know, one thing that's very interesting about the Alzheimer's drug is that, you know, the label itself is just so broad. My understanding from all of the work that was done on the drug itself is that it showed some potential clinical benefit, particularly for folks who are much younger. And so I think that there are is something to be said for, you know, is it experimental, particularly for populations that are younger? Um, I certainly, you know, firmly believe and recognize we want to make sure we have access to these drugs. But along the way, there are some there are some serious problems that came across with the FDA approval and the price itself. Um, and that is a really big challenge here. I feel like you and I could have a second conversation at a future date about the FDA accelerated approval process, this particular drug, how you balance access and innovation. There's a road we could go down, but I want to stay focused on the fundamentals here a little bit. And going back to the shenanigans, if you will, you alluded to a couple of specific practices that I think are, are sort of good examples of the problems that we're seeing within the system. And for our listeners, could you describe these a little bit? You mentioned patent thickets as one area. What What is a patent thicket? Help us understand that. Sure. So a patent thicket is basically a protective measure where manufacturers will file patents on every sort of aspect, not only on the drug itself. Itself, but the manufacturing of it to create truly a thicket around the drug itself. So if anyone were to try to challenge one of those patents, you're still, as you challenge one, there's another 10 or 15 behind it. And so it's really that sort of force. So, you know, the patent protection um, could take on many different forms, but what we're seeing are patents being filed on very small aspects, not the whole drug itself, but either the manufacturing or, you know, it could be on the coloring, it could be on the dosing. So there are a variety of ways that manufacturers are trying to just, again, protect their market share by having all these patents filed on the drug to prevent competition. 
Is that the same thing as product hopping or is that a different practice? It's a little bit different. Product hopping, though, is slightly different. And that what you're seeing for product hopping is that as an exclusivity is getting set to expire, a manufacturer then may change what the dosing is or it may go from extent to an extended release. And then they'll take the other drug off market and say, no, you, this only this new version, which may be a different color, is going to be on market. So they're restarting the exclusivity clock by having potentially... Um, changes to the drug itself. So from a time period perspective, as you look at those two examples, what does that mean in terms of how long a manufacturer might be able to maintain protection and exclusivity? Unfortunately, I would love to say there's a time period associated with it, but sky's the limit here. Depending on how creative, you know, how creative manufacturers are, they can continue to make modifications to drugs, again, with no clinical additional benefit, or file additional patents just to continue to protect their market share and prevent either generics about similar from coming to market and having lower cost alternatives for consumers. That's super helpful, Lauren. So looking ahead then, we talked a little bit about the what that means for innovation, what that means for patients, because for the patient perspective, you're balancing the cost impact of having drugs that can be priced wherever the manufacturer wants to price them, but also trying to balance the reward for innovation when a breakthrough new therapy is designed. So as policymakers look at trying to strike that balance and maybe addressing some of those areas, is there legislation that you're watching that you think has got a chance here of moving forward? So there have been a, a number of bills that have been introduced in Congress to try to address all of these challenges. You know, during um, in 2019, the Finance Committee had a number of hearings with uh, CEOs. And what was most interesting to me at that point was actually Senator Cornyn from Texas, um, who really harped on on the CEO of AbbVie at the time and, and the patents around Humira. Um, and so Senator Cornyn, um, along with some other senators on the Democratic side of the aisle, um, you know, have been working on bills to try to address these patent issues. But of course, they're challenging because when you're talking about patents, it obviously can go much broader than just beyond prescription drugs. And that, you know, of course, is a challenging dynamic. But there have been a number of bills introduced in Congress to try to deal with some of these issues. Um, and I, it's been pleasant to see a lot of them done on a bipartisan basis. I think the other thing that's a challenge as well is, though, as again, as we're trying to address issues around drug pricing, you know, is how do you ensure that you're holding manufacturers accountable for their price increases? How do you hold them accountable for just their egregious practices general, whether it be product topping or patent thickets, but then also making sure that when we are doing this, we're doing it in a way that's actually not going to then all of a sudden have a balloon scenario where if you're squeezing here, then prices are increasing over here. Um, and that's a little bit of a challenge to make sure that we're putting downward pressure um, and also making sure that they realize that you know we have to be in a different situation where sky is no longer the limit in terms of what they can do for prices. So what does that mean in practical terms when you think about what can be done from a public policy perspective? Does that mean rather than one-off rifle shop bills, we need a more comprehensive package of drug pricing solutions to avoid that balloon effect? And honestly, Given the history we've all lived through the last many years about Congress trying to address drug pricing, how realistic is it that they can get it done this time around? So I'm an eternal optimist, despite being a cynic from New York City. But I do think that we are in a situation now where the challenges that consumers are facing and us as payers or the government taxpayers is so challenging that I think there's bipartisan acknowledgement that this issue needs to be addressed. And I think the challenge, though, is figuring out ways that you can ensure that we are maintaining access to drugs, 
that we're maintaining innovation. But again, it's not a false premise. We can have innovation and have affordability. It's really a challenge uh, for the manufacturers. Are they going to come to the table and actually engage in a real conversation? That's not just moving the needle a little bit and having others in the system pick up additional costs. Right now, manufacturers aren't taking on any responsibility at all for their practices. And, you know, they always talk about research and development and research and development is absolutely critical. But we also know that they spend more on marketing and advertising than they do on research and development. So we need to have a conversation about that as well. I say broadly, though, I think policymakers, the president, you know, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle very much recognize that this is the moment. Um, we are in a situation where the, the current path is just unsustainable. Um, so I think we're going to see and we have seen a lot of uh, interest in working in this issue in Congress. Most notably right now, there is work happening on the House side on H.R. 3, which, you know, we can certainly talk about. I'm sure, J.C., you have lots of strong opinions about that bill as well. And over on the Senate side, there is a process underway with Senator White and others about how do you address these issues. But again, the challenge is thinking about one, you know, particularly for consumers, you want to make sure that they are paying, um, you know, low cost at the at the pharmacy counter. But we also want to make sure, though, that we're not somehow increasing Medicare premiums. So, you know, thinking for a moment about the, you know, misguided rebate rule that the previous administration put forward, um, you know, they really, in, in my opinion, I think you share this, JC, is it really was a misguided opportunity. When you're walking away and all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have significant premium increases for Medicare beneficiaries who are on fixed incomes. You're going to increase costs to taxpayers, you know, and the manufacturers are going to walk away with the windfall, then something is wrong here. And so we want to make sure that as we're lowering costs at the pharmacy counter, we're also not accidentally increasing Medicare premiums or premiums for others in the commercial market. And so, again, if we're just moving numbers around, that's not going to actually do anything. We need to make sure that manufacturers have skin in the game. And that's one of the things that I think Congress is really focusing on right now. It would not be the Pharmacy Benefit Podcast without a mention of the rebate rule. So thank you for getting that in, Lauren. And I will fully agree with everything you said around that issue. I want to press you a little bit. You talked about sort of the big picture dynamics there as we think about solutions. But from CSRXP's standpoint, what are the top three or four must-haves in terms of drug pricing policy? Maybe get a little bit more specific about what needs to be in a package from your perspective. One thing that's always challenging when you're thinking about this is we don't want to be myopic. You know, I think we don't want perfect to be the enemy of good. Um, and this is such a challenging dynamic that anytime Congress is willing to work on this issue and try to address it one challenge at a time, we think is important. So just thinking back a few years now, you know, to the CREATES Act was something we spent a lot of time on many years ago, which was, again, we had a situation where manufacturers um, were really trying to hide behind one small FDA process to prevent generics from getting access to samples to do bioequivalence testing. And that was, some, you know, that was really impacting a generic version of a drug from coming to market. So the CREATES Act was something we worked on for a long time. That ultimately became law. So we stopped one of those abuses. And it is a little bit like whack-a-mole. There are multiple different ways that manufacturers try to abuse the system, and we need to figure out a way to deal with all of them. There are approaches you can do in a comprehensive manner, but there are also ways you can do it in um, a more skillful manner, too. I'd say we also had a lot of success as well going through the trade conversations with USMCA last Congress, where, you know, the manufacturers had, the brand name manufacturers had a lot of things they want to accomplish to protect their market share. And ultimately, you know, we prevailed and there weren't additional protections put in place in those trade bills for them, which was huge. So as we're, as we're moving forward, again, we, we don't want perfect to be the enemy of the good. Um, but I think as I define success, 
I'd say it's a couple of things. One, I think that obviously, you know, the fact that Medicare beneficiaries right now, there's no out-of-pocket cap um, is a challenge. So we want to make sure that we are protecting Medicare beneficiaries. At the same time, though, we want to make sure that manufacturers are paying their fair share for this, because the reason why Medicare beneficiaries need a cap on out-of-pocket costs is because costs are so high. So we want to ensure that if we're going to redesign the Medicare Part D program, which absolutely needs to be you know, modified and updated, we need to ensure, though, that manufacturers have significant liability here um, to help cover some of these costs. So that is one uh, thing that we feel very, very strongly about. And to jump in on your number one, the point you're making in part is there are some consumers, some beneficiaries in Part D that do have exposure to high out-of-pocket costs. We need to address that. But if we only address that without bringing prices down, then we're just shifting costs around in the system, not getting at the root problem. It all has to be done together, right? Absolutely. I think the other element that's really important also is getting more generics and biosimilars to market. And we've talked a lot about this already. But as we're thinking about what the trajectory is of drugs and new drugs coming to market, they are all brand, many are brand biologics. And so, you know, my, my wish list would be for the level of exclusivity for, for biologics to go down from 14 years to seven. Um, that is something that President Obama talked about for a long time. That is something that our coalition has talked about for a long time. That is unlikely at the moment, to be honest, but that is something long term would have a significant impact on it. But any policy that would help get more biosimilars to market, whether it's dealing with patent issues or other reimbursement issues, we think would be really, really positive. And then I'd say third, you know, we have a number of drugs that are really just outpacing inflation. And so we need to think creatively about how do we ensure that we are keeping that downward pressure again on prices. So that way it's not just going up year after year after year for, yeah, and multiple percentages each year. And then I'd say finally, you know, this is not as impactful from a pricing perspective, but really important is transparency. And, you know, the transparency on the part of the manufacturer is really a challenge. We know a little bit about how they determine the price of their product. And what we've learned so far is that sky's the limit. There's no formula. There's no rhyme or reason. Um, going back to work that Senator Wyden and Grassley did in 2016 on Savalde, again, they determined the price of their product based on what they thought the market would bear. And it doesn't have any direct costs or any direct association with research and development. So we need to have an honest conversation about how manufacturers are determining the price of their product. What are the inputs? How much are they truly spending on research and development? The significant cost they're spending on marketing and advertising. Perhaps if they spent less on marketing and advertising, we could have lower prices. So that's a conversation that we feel truly we need to have about, again, the transparency part for manufacturers is really um, a black box. And we want to know more about how they determine these prices. And the end goal of that transparency is obviously that we want the system to reward the value of the therapy, the innovation, the drug. And without sufficient information to really measure and gauge that value, it's hard to make sure the system's getting it right. Absolutely. And particularly when a new drug's coming to market, you know, when um, drugs are coming to market in the EU, they have to provide a dossier of what the clinical benefit is for that drug. If there's a drug that's going to have a significant clinical benefit, well, then maybe, you know, maybe a high price is, is appropriate. But the reality is we don't have that information now. And so that is really a challenge for us um, as a system and as a country to grapple with. We all want new innovative drugs to come to market, but we also need to make sure that they are, one, actually offering additional clinical benefit, but also affordable. Because, again, a new innovative drug that comes to market with a huge price tag that's unaffordable does nothing for anyone. 
And just dovetailing off that a little bit, for years, we all in the healthcare system have talked about moving to a system that rewards value, value-based care, value-based purchasing. And in the drug space in particular, many PBMs out there are, are trying to experiment in particular with sole source, high cost drugs with value-based arrangements. But it feels like we never crest that hill. What's your perspective on the move to a more value-driven system? It's a great question, JC. I'm a little skeptical. To be honest, I think that in certain circumstances, it could be done well, but I think everyone defines value differently. And so trying to get to the same page between what a consumer is going to define as valuable versus a manufacturer versus a payer, I think is a challenge. I think there are certain circumstances, though, where they are value add and will work, but they're not the panacea to solve the problem, which is what we're seeing from manufacturers. They think if we have value-based contracts, it's going to solve all problems. And I, I personally don't believe it will. I think, again, in limited certain circumstances, it can be beneficial. But again, it's really, again, how you define success and how you define value. And that's going to be, I think, a particular challenge moving forward. So from your perspective, it gets back to your point that it has to be a holistic solution, right? At the outset, you got to address the competition question. We have to address the price point as the sort of foundation of all this. And then building off of that, we can look at things like modernizing Medicare Part D to help with those beneficiaries that may have high out-of-pocket costs, transparency to give us more data so that maybe in limited instances, at least hearing your skepticism, there may be a time and a place for certain value-based arrangements as a part of that big picture. Absolutely. But I think one other piece on the value-based side, too, is we need to have more information about what the clinical benefit of these drugs are. And we really don't have that information right now. There are very few institutions that are doing that work. ICER is one of them. They do phenomenal work, but they're just one institution right now. So I'm going to ask you a final question, Lauren, and it's the kind of question that our team here doesn't always love me to ask because it's going to date our podcast a little bit. But we are at the end of June 2021. The president and a group of senators have announced a deal on infrastructure that they want to bring before the House and the Senate. And they're looking at reconciliation as well. In the mix of things this year, what are the odds that you would put on some kind of package of drug pricing measures being enacted before the end of the year? I'm going to go with 75 to 80%. I think it will happen on a partisan basis in reconciliation. And I think that the Democratic base wants to do something on drug pricing that will help spur action in Congress. I think the speaker herself is also very committed to this. President Biden is committed to it. He talked about it a lot in his address to Congress. And, and Leader Schumer is too. Um, and even Senator Wyden put out his proposals this week. Um, so I think that there is enough of a desire on the part of Democrats to do this. Is this going to be the thing that leads reconciliation? No. Reconciliation is going to be led by childcare tax credit and other you know, more politically salient, easier issues to address. But that said, I believe that drug pricing is still very high on the list, and I think members of Congress are going to want to address it. You said you were an optimist, and I would say those odds feel optimistic. We'll have you back in the fourth quarter and see how it's looking at that point. Sounds good. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and thanks to all of you for listening. I encourage you to subscribe to The Pharmacy Benefit and download all of our podcast episodes. You can do that on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm JC Scott. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.